God bless you. God bless you. Good to see everyone here. It is great to see a growing church. I was telling everyone that uh, when I first came and the church was beginning to launch uh, the pre-service, which had about 70, 80 people here, was the whole church. And so now seeing God move is just an incredible thing. Um, I'm hearing folks are pregnant in this place. Amen and amen. Uh, Justin is, I mean, he's being fruitful and multiplying. Amen. And your worship leader's not here, and I hear other people pregnant. Amen. So, I mean, everybody's having babies. Huh? Huh? That's awesome. You have a baby. You have a baby. It's like Oprah. Look under your seat. You got a baby. All right. All right. You got to grow the church. You got to grow the church any way you can. All right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you right now that we have the opportunity to hear from you. God, we're here to hear from you. We want to hear from you, God. We don't want uh, to, to, to have eloquence or, of speech, God. We, we don't want craftiness. We want you, God. And so, God, we offer ourselves. Now, that, that means that the speaker must be in a posture of surrender, but the listeners must be in a posture of readiness, God. Uh, we, we must have this exchange, this transaction that we're giving ourselves to you and you are giving yourselves to us. So God, we now are not ending worship, but we are continuing our worship, God, as we give our minds, our hearts, and to stay open to what you have to say to us today. So God, we surrender all that we thought before we came in here and we we ask that you just drown out the distractions that will come in our minds as, as, as the word goes forth, God, and we just we just sit closer to what you have to say to us, God. We want to come closer to what you have to say to us, God. More than your words. We want you. We want more of you, God. So, God, we draw closer to you as you draw close to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I know that you all are in a series. We're going to take a break from that series right now. And <clears throat> we're in a series in our church where um, we're, we're just dealing with the, the idea of searching for yourself, finding yourself, figuring out who you are. Now, you've used that phrase when someone goes off to college or if they're doing something in their life and they're trying to figure themselves out. And you said they're trying to find themselves, right? Amen? Well, that's the nature of our series as we're walking through the book of Ephesians and understanding our identity in Christ. We've called the series Searching for Me. Now, in the series, we've used an image of uh, me and my family. I think it's going to come up on the screen there. It's me when I was about two years old, and my dad is holding me there. And uh, next to my, uh, if you look on the bottom left, that is uh, actually bottom right over there. That's my grandfather and then my great-grandfather, Justice Roberson, uh, James Roberson Sr., James Roberson Jr., and James T. Roberson III, right? And so that's, that's my lineage, and, and that's why when people say my name, they say, well, you're James T. Roberson. I say I'm the third because I'm proud of where I come from, right? I, I know my family, and I know what they sacrificed in order to have me be the man that I am today. And all my family, all my, my, my father's lineage, they, they're, they're pioneers. Um, and Justice Roberson, he started the NAACP in Moss Point, Mississippi, and, and James Roberson, he started a club, amen, amen, his leadership. And then my, my, my dad... My dad, he, he worked for IBM. He moved up to New York in 1968. He was one of the first black programmers for IBM. He was the first black man to graduate from Millsaps College in Mississippi. And then they had me, right? So I come from a lineage of pioneers. 
And, and although my father is very pioneering, um, my father as well, he, he has parts of his personality that I love and parts of his personality that we have friction from. My dad is a strong dad. One of them daddies that kind of tell you what they think. And then you just have to deal with the ramifications, right? When you think of your father, what is a word? What's a story that captures dad? No matter your age, when you think of the word father, what comes to mind? Some of you, because dad wasn't there, thinking of the word father has emotional power to it. For some of you, your fathers may have been physically present but emotionally absent. Others of you, you just had an imperfect dad like the rest of us. But there's a story behind that word, father. If I could tell you a story that captures my dad's personality, when I was growing up, I'm going to date myself, amen. When I was growing up, hip-hop was just starting out, you know, and everybody was wearing these crazy clothes. And so there was this group, Crisscross, okay, all right, the Daddy Mac, the Mac Daddy, amen. All right, and so Crisscross was out, right, and and, and, and so they had this one song, Jump, and everybody was singing it and whatnot. And I was, I was in the ninth grade, right? And so at the time, in the 90s, you wore all these different colors and clothes. They actually had a, had a company called Cross Colors. And it was, I mean, the, 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 the palette was just crazy. I mean, the colors we wore were just insane, right? But what we would do, my friends and I got together, and they were like, yo, on Tuesday, we're going to go to school, and we're going to wear our clothes backwards like crisscross. And I was like, bet, let's do that. So, so here's my dad working for IBM, wearing his suit now, his tie. He's got his coffee, legs, arms folded, legs folded, downstairs. I come downstairs. My clothes are on backwards. My dad, he's, he's having a conversation with me. He's like, you got all your books? I'm like, yeah, dad, I do. He's like, okay, getting ready to go out. I was like, uh-huh. And he's like, all right. Hey, do you know your clothes are on backwards? <laughs> I do, dad. What, what's happening is all my friends, now mind you, my pants are on backwards, my shirt's on backwards. It made sense at the time. My dad is like, you know all your clothes are on the wrong way. And I said, Dad, it's, I know, but what it is is that there's this group, Criss Cross, and all my friends, we're, you know, we're going to have our clothes on backwards. And he was like, oh, okay. Well, you might miss the bus, but you're going to go upstairs, and you're going to put all your clothes on the right way. Because when me and your mama bought those clothes, we meant for them to be on the right way. <laughs> there's a parent. You know, that's a parent. You know, that's a parent right there. That parent is like, mm-hmm, that's right. <laughs> Not in my house, right? So, so I did what kids do, right? I started to try to deliberate with my dad. I'm like, Dad, you know, you got to understand, you know, my friends, I'm going to look crazy. He was like, you look crazy. <laughs> so, no, you're not going to do that. So, so look, I'm, at the time, I'm 14 years old. So I did this thing, right? Sometimes kids do this. I tried to get emotional. 
dad. You know what I'm talking about? Dad. You don't understand. I'm going to look crazy for my friends. So, dad, do you, I mean, I just wonder if you could just understand, man. I just, I'm going to miss the bus. And my dad looked at me in typical father fashion. He said, son, go upstairs, put your clothes on now, and if you don't, I'm going to crisscross your body. (laughs) True story, true story. All of us have dads that you can remember a a story if your father was around. There's a story that kind of captures his personality. And so my dad was strong. But he wasn't the most intimate individual. It wasn't like we were talking about, I love you, I love That wasn't our house. That wasn't happening at all, right? Some of you may have had a dad, right, where the term daddy was real to you, that he was intimate and close. That's very few of us, but some of us actually had that. The important thing that we have to wrestle with is that as we try to understand who we are in Christ, we have to understand that we have been made for a daddy. God has constructed us to desire that need. And and the reality is that if you had a father, you look through your earthly father to see your heavenly father. In other words, you cannot help but understand father through your earthly father. And so sometimes we superimpose the frailty and the sinful patterns of our earthly father onto our heavenly father. Dad was absent. Sometimes we think God won't be close. If God, God, if, if if Dad was close, but but he had no strength and wasn't powerful, we may attribute that to our heavenly Father. And so we look through those lenses. And so we must get to understand God, Father, and be comfortable with that term. Scholars now and some secular thinkers would say that the term Father it should not be attributed to God. They would say that that word itself does not, is not defining of God. And yet, when you look in the scriptures, in the gospels, the word father is used 239 times. That when Jesus is praying, he says, you know, the disciples come to him and say, hey, teach us how to pray. And he says, our what? Father. He wants him to be understood as a father. In Romans chapter 8, 15 It says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, what? Father. He's saying in this text that a slave in a home always felt as if our relationship could end. That it was based upon performance. So they walked around in fear. But a son who was adopted would be in there. And if they really felt comfortable that they were now adopted and accepted in the home, they would begin to cry out and actually call their master, that that person that was over them. They would call them daddy. They would be related to them and connected with them. At that time, they would make adoptions happen to older folks who had a memory of the past. And in reality, they would struggle with getting close to this terminology, daddy. And so if you look here in in Romans 8.15, it says we cry out, Abba, Father. That is the indication that you understand your adoption as a child of God. You're crying out. 
And if you're not crying out, then you don't understand how intimate God wants to be with you. Kids cry out. Amen, parents? Huh? Y'all know about it. Mm, yeah, kids cry out. Kids interrupt. A child ain't never found a good conversation they can't interrupt. Mm, yeah. They say, is this deep? Yeah, yeah, I'd like to interrupt it. I, I can't tell you. I was telling, start telling my church yesterday. I cannot tell you how many times I'm... I will be in church after church, and somebody will be there, and they will be just pouring out their soul. They're like, Pastor Jim, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And I'm like, right now, you're going to make it. God is with you. God is for you. God is on your side. You are the head. You're the tail. And I'm doing all this stuff, and I'm praying over them. And all of a sudden, I get this tap on my leg from my little two-year-old. He's like, <sighs> I'm looking down. I'm like, not now. And they're like, <sighs> I want to go outside. <laughs> Not, not now. So like I was saying, God loves you and he cares for you. And I'm telling you right now, you're going to make it through this thing. <sighs> I, can I go outside? It's like, no, not right now. Ask your mother. She's a better parent. So like I was saying, so like I was saying, God loves you. He cares for you right now in the mighty name of Jesus. I'm just praying over you. I know you're going through this. You're going to make it. Right? And they just start crying and crying because kids cry because they believe they are emotionally entitled to your attention. Kids feel they're emotionally entitled to your attention. They're like, no, 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 somebody's going to get me some milk today. I don't know who it is. I'm going to eat. Yeah. What are y'all going to do? That's what kids do. And until you feel emotionally entitled to your God, you haven't understood your adoption. It's one thing to call him father, but the intimacy of daddy. And you will understand more of who you are as you are connected to this idea of father. Some of you, as I said, you may have not had a father there. And that absent father imprint is left on you, and you walk around, and sometimes we want to turn people into daddies that can never be a good daddy. When you are in this space of wanting closeness, of wanting connection, sometimes those of us that, that want that daddy-like figure in our lives, we can find ourselves becoming codependent on a person. We can find ourselves, uh, if you're a parent, you can become a smothering mother or a helicopter dad because even though you're the parent, you can be codependent on your child. People are wanting someone who is strong, who understands them, who connects with them, who is kind and who protects. Your soul has been created for a daddy. Someone who is strong but close. And the truth is, for those of us that had a father in the house, and for those of us that did not have a father in the house, a lot of times both of us are still looking for a daddy, someone we can trust and who is close. 
And so today it is of the utmost importance that we understand how much God wants us to long for that term father, how much intimacy he wants in the term daddy. And here's the thing that we have to understand. There's another father at work, and he's called the father of lies. He distorts the image of God. And he wants you to believe God does not care. Or God is not strong enough for your issues and your life and your time. If you have the book of Ephesians on your phone or if you actually have a Bible, my church, ain't nobody got a Bible no more. <laughs> my mom comes to the church, she'd be like, mm, ain't nobody got a Bible. Mm. Okay, all right. My Bible ain't never lost its power. Okay. <laughs> I ain't got a child. I ain't got to charge Ephesians, okay? All right. But my mom loves God. She does. She's a great person, but she's judgmental. <laughs> Y'all know what that's about. Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1. Now, we, as, as a church, we've been walking through the book of Ephesians, and, and something to know that Ephesians is understood as what's called a circular letter, meaning that it was a book that would have been passed around, not just to the city of Ephesians, but to other cities, because Paul wanted this entire region to understand certain biblical truths. In a lot of different books, you would have Paul responding to a particular issue, but in this book, Paul is responding to a, a larger concept. He wants them to understand their identity. So in Ephesians 1 and 17, this is what Paul says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul, therefore, is telling the church, one of my greatest prayers I could ever have for you is that you would know God more. And that it would be manifest, not just in knowledge for an intellectual ascent, but it would bear out in wisdom, that's skillful living, and revelation, that's new information. That you would daily just be getting to know God more, know more about his attributes, and you'd be able to apply this in your life so you could be skillful and godly every day. And Paul is praying that over the church. He wants them to internalize the spiritual truths of God. Knowing God in your mind is a great, great difference than knowing God in your heart. One author said that the longest distance is the distance between your head and your heart. Even though it is 18 inches, it, it feels like it's so long. And you know, your, your Bible might be filled up with notes, but it doesn't mean it's worked its way into your heart. Connecting to it, believing it. If you're not doing it, do you really believe it? And that's why he says, I want wisdom and skill. And many of you are feeling the pressure of life. You parents are dealing with children. You, you all that are in school, you're dealing with academics. You all that are dealing with friendships and loneliness and relationships and connections and the pressures of life. You are dealing with these things. And as you, some of you are trying to work your way up the food chain and you're trying to get a better job or a better life, you're, you're trying to find your boo, you're trying to get disconnected from a boo, you want to have a baby, all these different things in life, Paul is praying, yes, you need to know certain things to get to the next level. But here's the thing. Do not know more about life and miss God. Know God more. 
and make that your aim. Make it your aim. Make it your drive. Make it your master passion to know God more. Because it will be in knowing him more and more intimately, more more wisdom and more revelation that you will be able to not just endure that moment, but you will be able to operate in his peace as you know him more. Moses, Moses, it said Moses would commune with God face to face. Now, can you imagine having that kind of moment with God? Looking at him, all we have are the scriptures and and, and, you know, some Hillsong to listen to and some Bethel and, and a, you know, we get all snotty in the morning and we're just like, oh, I feel your presence. I need your presence. He wasn't saying I need your presence. He was in his presence. You feel me? Like he was looking at, looking at God face to face. And yet there was this moment in Exodus 33 where Moses is dealing with the Israelites. I mean, he's dealing with all their issues, and they're always complaining, and they always got a problem with Moses. And so he's looking at God face to face, but he's dealing with life, too. And there comes this point where he's leading the people, and he says, look, God, you got to come with me in this. Like, I can't lead these people. I'm, like, worn out. I can't, I can't do it anymore. I'm worn out. I need more of you. And he says in Exodus 33, 13, now if I have found favor with you, Please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I might find favor with you. And this is what he continued to say in verse 18. Then Moses says, please let me see your glory. The glory of God. The magnitude of God. The word glory means weightiness. I want to see the full you. I want to see more of you, and he is saying it. In such a way where I want to see you showing up in my world and in my life. I just want to say to you right now. Some of you, when you first started your walk with God, you were running hard. You were cross-referencing stuff. Yeah. You were watching sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon. Song after song. And then life hit you. And you started looking at life and glancing at God. You kept looking at life and glancing at God. You kept looking at life and peeking at God. And if you want that spirit of Moses, you have to stare at God and fix your eyes on Jesus and glance at life. And you look at life. You say, okay, I got this situation. I got these people I'm dealing with. What would, what would you do? Tell me more. Tell me more. I need you. I need you. I need you. And you glance at life. And you take life and you put it right at God's feet. The problem is you're hungering more in life and you're putting God at the feet of life and not life at the feet of God. You're, you're, you're begging life for more and asking God to tag along to life. And you're saying, I need more, 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 more. The spirit of Moses here is, I want more of you. And if I don't get whatever I'm longing for in my life, I still have you. And you are what I want. You are what I long for. And today, some of you at the sound of my voice are going to stop giving life overdue attention. And you're going to give God the attention he deserves and the attention you long for. Because it's not strong enough 
what? That job, it ain't strong enough. That boo, she ain't strong enough. That baby, you know what that baby going to do when you have that baby? <laughs> Be a baby. Mm-hmm. It's not enough. It's not enough. And life is not enough. God is enough. And you have to stare at God and glance at life. Amen? He says, I pray that you would have that kind of Moses-like spirit, that you would know God and want to know him more. That that would be your drive and your master passion. He prays another prayer in verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what the hope of his calling is. Now, the problem in this verse is if you have like the NIV or a different version, uh, not that I'm some Bible scholar. I Google just like the rest of us. Amen. But, but what the problem is is that if you see this as reading the hope of your calling and not the hope of his calling, you'll get the verse altogether wrong in what it's trying to get at you. Now, it's, so in the proper rendering of the text, it is the hope of his calling, not your calling, like what, what, like what the calling in your life, but his calling. If I look at John right here, right? John's staring at me right now because he has to because it's a sermon, amen. And if I were to stare at him, stare at him, I'd say, John. John would look at me and I'd say, John. And then he would look like, what's up, dude? I'd be like, John. I'd be like, is there a spider on me? What's up? Like, what's wrong? Because you don't have to say the name or get the attention of someone already looking at you. But when someone is facing away, and parents, y'all already know what's up. When someone's not paying attention to you, you say James, and they're not paying attention. Then you say James Terry, James Terry Roberson III, look at me. And you say their full government name because they're not paying attention to you. Calling is all about interrupting someone that's not looking your way. Calling means I wanted to get your attention because you're not looking at me. And what that means is when it says the hope of his calling, it means that God was bellowing, yelling, trying to get your attention. You remember that when God was trying to get your attention? Yeah, yeah, you was driving to sin. Mm, You was like, I'm going to sin tonight, and then I'm going to sin tomorrow. And you just like, that's what I'm going to do. Amen. Some of y'all don't remember that. But some of you remember that. And that's all you were thinking about. And God, yes, you love God. You love worship. You love the church. You love Jesus. But although you love it, the way you got to where you are is that God interrupted your life. It was an intervention. And in so doing, knowing that, it reminds us that God was the one that got my attention. He was the one that woke me up. I was sleeping on him, and he woke me up. I didn't just call out to God, but God was always calling out to me. And if we don't remember that it is the one, the God of heaven and earth, the big strong God that bellows down and says our name, John, John, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. If we don't hear that, we will think when we wander off that he's still not calling our name. That he's still not bellowing to us and yelling for us to understand who he is. That is how we come into relationship with God. God calls us. He reels us in. One poet called God the hound of heaven chasing us down. He came after us. It says in the book of Acts of a woman named Lydia, she was a dealer of purple. Acts 16, 14. 
a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple, cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening as the word of God was going forth. And it says, the Lord opened up her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. The Lord was the one that made it a reality for her to get connected to him. And that is what God did in your life. God woke you up. God made himself real to you. Do you remember the the first time you were reading the Bible and you were just checking something out and you were going over a text and then at some point while you were reading, you were like, ooh, that was for me. Oh, wow. I'm not just reading a book. This thing is alive. Making your heart be connected to the text. That's what God does. He opens up our heart. You can never want God enough. You will never want God enough. When you are not paying attention to God, God is paying attention to you. And there is a part of us that may believe that there is a sin that will make God not want me anymore. But you have to remember how it started. You wanted my attention. I didn't want yours. When we're crying out to God and saying, God, are you up there? I mean, come on. Do you see this situation? You got to remember how this thing started out. God wanted your attention. He wanted to get connected to you. He longs to be connected to you. And we are the ones that stiff arm God. You have to know the hope that, that springs up in that reality. see you face to face as well, even when we ignore him. That breeds great hope. Some of you in here this morning, last night might have been a night where you felt, you know, God, you're you pretty much tired of me, aren't you? Just say, just say it. It's okay. You can tell me. You don't want me no more, right? Some of you feel that you are on fragile ground with the Lord. And maybe it's because you don't realize the essence of your calling wasn't your performance. The spirit of adoption tells us that it's not performance, it's just his choosing. He loves us. Wouldn't it be a shame if kids got adopted based upon how they performed? Wouldn't that be horrible? That would be horrible. Like a game show, like called Kids Get Adopted. Wouldn't that be horrible? No, I'm just saying, wouldn't that be horrible? Wouldn't that be horrible? It would be like, you know, kids got talented, like kids get adopted, and little Jimmy's up there doing the running man. They were like, bam, not good enough. And then they got another kid up there, and he's like, he's like doing the Millie Wop, and he's like, nope, bam, you know. But then the other girl gets up singing, they're like, oh, we'll take you, and we'll be your family. Like, wouldn't that be horrible if adoption was based on performance? But that's how you're operating with God. You think, oh, I came to church and God's like, ding, good job. I love you still. You're like, oh, I'm on the, I'm on the team at Zion. God really loves me. Ding. And you're like, well, <laughs> I wilded out last night. And God's like, eh, not my child anymore. <laughs> Come back for next season. Maybe we'll give you another shot. 
I mean, can you imagine that? That would be horrible. But, but because we are performance-oriented beings, we think God operates. Like I've got to, my faithfulness is what keeps us connected. Isn't that wild? Your faithfulness doesn't keep you connected with him. It keeps you knowledgeable of him. His faithfulness to you is what keeps you all connected. He is faithful when we are faithless. And when you are in your darkest moment, it gives you hope because I know you are still there. That's the kind of daddy we have. That's the kind of father we have. Lastly, in Ephesians 1.18, it says, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, I ain't got time to go into all the details of this text. But the one thing I will say is that if you are studying the book of Ephesians and you look in verse 14, what it will say is that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance, telling us that we will one day be with God in all of his glory, streets of gold, no more tears, forever connected to all the peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness we could ever want in relationship. So we have that as our inheritance. Now, many of us don't understand the weight of inheritance because we probably aren't getting an inheritance if our parents die. Amen? Now, my church is filled with a lot of young people, but their family is broke, and they broke, and so everybody's just like, I talk about inheritance, they're like, oh, so that's like if my parents, like if somebody's parents die, you get money. I'm like, yeah, they're like, okay, I got to pray about that. I got to study that. Yeah, you got to study it because ain't nothing coming your way. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) You ain't getting no inheritance. Okay. I mean, I don't know your situation. I don't know your situation. I'm just telling you most of the people in my church aren't getting anything if their parents die, you know. I'm like, what are you going to get? It's like maybe some unused lotto tickets, some chicken wings. I don't know. I ain't ain't getting nothing except paying for the funeral. Amen. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest that we don't understand the weight of inheritance because many of us aren't connected to that. But there are some people that live this life that one day will have a great inheritance and they live awaiting it. They know they might be momentarily broke, but they know one day they're going to be paid because they have an inheritance. I see the analogy don't go over because we don't know nobody like that. But, <laughs> but, here's, but, here's, but here's what he's saying. This is the wild part. This is the wild part in the text. It blows my mind. I was reading it and studying it. And you know how preachers are like, this is amazing. But I'm just saying, that, that's what I do, so I'm excited about it. But this is, this is actually amazing. Verse 18, it says, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what the text is saying is, we have God and his presence as an inheritance when we die. But what verse 18 says is that God has an inheritance in us when we see him. He views us as an inheritance. In other words, the way that God is positioning this in the text is that we are a precious possession that he can't wait to see one day. That he longs to be with us. And it's hard for us to capture that in our minds that, that you know, we, that's why we, when we sing, we're just like, oh, God, we need you and we want you and we want you. And God is saying, I want you too. 
Do you remember when you, you know, if for those of you in a relationship where, like, you found out the, the intensity of the relationship was mutual? Like, you were, like, really into him. Like, I'm really feeling her. Like, I'm really, really feeling her. Oh, my God. I feel it. And you told your boys, and you're just like, yo, I'm just saying, man. And then one day you were just sitting there chilling with her and you're just like, you know what I'm saying? I don't know if you know, I don't know, but I'm just saying I like you. And you, you put it on the line and then she looked at you and she goes, I like you too. <laughs> and it was just like, boom, right? Because, you, you know, nobody wants in a relationship that's 50%. You want, you know, I'm going to give my all and give my all. And we kind of think, oh, I'm giving my all and God's like, oh, keep coming, keep going. But God's like, I want you too. I'm into you too. I'm your inheritance. You're my inheritance. I like you. I like you. I love you. I love you. I want you. I want you. So what's up? <laughs> so this gets pictured, but let's think about that. How much God is looking at you right now. He wants you. He wants to be with you. We don't think of a dad like that, but we have a dad that wants to be close. In the Old Testament, they would have this thing called an ephod that they would wear, the priest, the high priest. And he would go into the temple, into the presence of God, and he would wear this, this like, it wasn't a robe, but it would go over a robe. And on this robe, there would be this breastplate, and it was about 10 inches long and 10 inches wide, and it would go right over their chest. And God wanted it in Exodus. He tells them how they created it. And in Exodus 28, 17, it, he talks about how to create it. It says, place a setting of gemstones on it, four rows. Now, I'm going to say a bunch of, like, jewels that I'm going to mess up the phrasing so you can, like, go to this verse and look them up. But I looked up all these. They look bad. They're amazing. So just hear what I'm about to say. The first row, he says, should be carnelian and topaz and emerald. And the second row, a turquoise, a lapis, a luzili. You know, you know how luzili? Nobody know what luzili is. And a diamond, verse 19. The third row, jacinth. Oh, man. And agate and whatever. And amethyst. And fourth row, beryl and onyx and jasper. And they should be adorned with gold and filigree in their settings. And, and, and as you look it up, it's this beautiful, you know, got all these diamonds and gems and gold in it. And it says in verse 21, the 12 stones, though, those stones are to correspond to the names of Israel's sons. Each stone must be engraved like a seal with one of the names of the 12 tribes. So what it was saying is all those stones that were there, the beauty of them, there was actually a name written over it. And when the high priest would walk in, God would look on them and he would see a name, but he would see it shining like a diamond. And it's hard for you to understand that when our high priest talks to God and thinks of you, he does not think of your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the beauty of a diamond. He sees the beauty of Christ overlaid over your sin. He sees the beauty of his life overlaid over your past. He sees the beauty of Christ overlaid over all your inconsistency. When God looks at you, he sees the beauty of Jesus shining like a diamond. Over your entire life, you're beautiful to him. He wants you. He longs for you to look at him. 
he's saying, man, that kind of God wants me. You, you want me? You like me? You're into me like that? And it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. His life is over our life. We keep super, superimposing our broken father wounds over God, but God is superimposing Christ's righteousness over us. You keep looking at God with the past of your broken father, but he keeps looking at you and he sees your future and he sees Jesus. And he's just looking at you. You know, if you're a parent, you ever, I mean, you ever go into your kid's room at night? You're tired. They, they'd have bothered you, but sometimes you see them sitting there sleeping. You go, I love that baby girl. I tell you. She's crazy, but I just love her because there's a love that supersedes your foolishness. That's how God's love is for you. Do you know God loves you, amen? And so if you know God loves you, then here's the one last thing, the last, last thing, because you're not a preacher until you lie about when you say it's your last point. This is my last, last point, you know what I'm saying? It was my last, but this is my last, last, you know what I'm saying? Ephesians 1.19 says that God is not only interested in us, he's involved. He says, but what, verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength? Look there, it says God has immeasurable greatness and power and he does it towards us and he works mighty works. In other words, we have the strong father who will defend his children, and he does it not based upon us, but according to his power. He is willing to defend us and fight for us and care for us. If you say, I believe according to a biology teacher, if you say the gospel according to you, Luke, it is based upon something else. There's another additional power that's working. And God works towards us not based upon our frailty, but based upon his power, according to his power. He is the strong father. He's the strong father. He's a strong father caring about you. He is the same God that created the heaven and earth, the same God that rose Jesus from the dead, the same God that has been working in your life. He is the strong father, and he is stronger than any other uh, season of your life. He is the strong father. And there is an image here. In Psalm 29, I think captures his strength and how he offers it to us. Psalm 29, the psalmist says, the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned king forever. The Lord gives his people strength and the Lord blesses his people with peace. Could you imagine right now? If you were somewhere in Louisiana when the waters were rushing in and you were in a house and the flood keeps rising. It's at your feet and the flood keeps rising. And it's at your legs and the flood keeps rising. And then it's at your chest and the flood keeps rising. And you are just like, yo, somebody. And you're crying out and you're like, I'm being flooded. And this is the picture. It says God sits above the flood. And he's like, yeah. I'm just here waiting. I am seated above 
the storm in your life. I am enthroned above the tornado-like situation you are in. I am seated. I'm not scratching my head and running around. I'm calm. I'm in power. I'm sovereign over the flood. And you say, but that's the kind of dad I had. He, he was strong, but he was so distant. I would say, hey, dad, something's going on, and he would not respond to my needs. Some of your dads let you drown, let you wallow in your situation. But God doesn't just sit above the throne. It says he, he offers this, his people strength and purpose. God, right now, some of you are feeling life flood you. It's flooding. And there is debt. There is anger. There is tension in your home. There's people you've lost. There's a weightiness and a burden that you are walking with. And it feels like a flood. And you're up in your neck in it. And you're just like, I, I got no space anymore. I got no emotional space for this. And listen. Even though you are flooded with the burdens of life, God can flood you with his peace and flood you with his strength. Woo! God can flood you with peace and flood you with his strength that will be greater than the flood that you're in. He sits enthroned right now. He is the strong God, but he's a close daddy. He's a strong father. He's looking at you right now. He's looking at your situation right now. He's looking at your season right now. And he longs to be involved more. But our job is just to cry out, Daddy. Daddy, see, I know you see this flood. Flood me right now. Flood me with your peace and your patience right now. Oh, God longs. He longs. He longs. He longs for us to just keep our eyes on him. He longs, he longs, he longs for us to want him like he, like, like he wants us. He longs for us to want him like he wants us. Take your eyes. Would you pray with me? Take your eyes off the flood right now. Take your eyes off the flood right now. Take your eyes off the storm right now. Take your eyes off that debt right now. Take your eyes off the weightiness of that job right now. Take your eyes off the weightiness of that relationship right now. Take your eyes off the weight of loneliness right now. Take your eyes off the flood right now. And fix your eyes on Jesus. He is seated on the throne right now. He wants you. He longs for a deeper connection with you. He wants you to pursue even more, even more, even more. Flood us, Jesus, with your peace. Flood us, Jesus, with your presence, God. We want to be overwhelmed by your presence, God. Flood us with your strength, God. We don't know if Monday has enough strength, but you have enough strength for Monday. We don't know if we have enough wisdom, but you've got it. 
God, flood us right now with your presence, God. Your presence, God. You are seated over the storm. And you lean down and you offer it to us. In the name of Jesus, we cry out victory from our daddy. We trust you, God. We love you, God. We know you are there.